Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for tuning in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Monday, July 26th, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles in Nehemiah chapter 9. The exiles are back. They have been hearing the book of the law, and I love it in chapter 8. It's kind of like, wow, this is great stuff, and they receive it with joy. And today we see how the the Word um, bears fruit in people's lives in confession, uh, recounting the deeds of the past, and also in prayer. All of this we learn because this is what happens when we're in the Word, and it will happen to us by what God does by the power of the Holy Spirit. Much to cover, always giving us Christ. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Oh, it's great to be here. Pastor, you, you've been on KFUO uh, uh, for many, many times, and you've been in other radio programs, so I feel like I know you, but we've never really met. You've never been on Thy Strong Words, so you can tell our guests. We always have new, not guests, our listeners. We always have new listeners all the time. So can you tell us about yourself, your family, and the work of the Saints at Redeemer? Oh, yes, that'd be great. Uh, so, you know, I was actually uh, born and raised here in New Mexico. I did not uh, grow up Lutheran. I became Lutheran intentionally, and uh, I continue to be Lutheran and continue to grow in the knowledge of salvation, uh, rejoicing in the Lord's gifts, all focused on Christ, our Savior. And so I, I, I came out of New Mexico. I decided to uh, go into uh become a, a pastor through the seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So that's where I, I received my training as a pastor for the Master of Divinity degree. But just recently, I had gone back to uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne to work on a Doctor of Ministry degree, which I actually I completed the dissertation, and I, I was able to walk in the commencement ceremony just uh, in May, May 21st. Right. So All right. I, I was able to do that, and my dissertation was on the proper receiving of forgiveness from Christ and giving forgiveness to others. So oh, it was Lord. the understanding of, yeah, yeah, so receiving that forgiveness every Sunday and then being forgiving people. So we're, we stand oh. forgiven before God and then we stand uh, forgiving uh, before others in our daily vocations, uh, grounded in the home, of course, in the evangelical order of the small catechism. So that, that's kind of where the emphasis of the whole dissertation was on. Oh, now, I, and we'll, we'll go I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to hear from this. So we're going to have to make sure that every time we talk about ex- forgiveness explicitly in the scriptures, we got to have Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer on because that is phenomenal. <laughs> I would love to hear this. I'd love to read this. I know it's long, but this is phenomenal. Sorry, you keep going. I, I'm just excited on this end of the mic. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, uh, uh, in Los Alamos, so I, I'm in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where we're planting a mission. Ironically, I, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, but again, like I said, not as a, a Lutheran, but actually as a Roman Catholic. Uh, so I'm in Los Alamos, and the 
The main industry, if you will, is the National uh, Nuclear Research Laboratory there. So this is Manhattan Project, atomic bomb. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a lot of uh, high IQs there, intellectual uh, populations off the chart. I think it's the largest per capita PhDs in the country and uh, also the, the largest uh, per capita, I, I believe, millionaires in the country, too, or somewhere around there. Mm. And so that, that works out great for us as a small congregation in a community uh, where the community doesn't grow. It's a small community, uh, but we have a very faithful members of the church who are mature in their faith. And that is also seen in their, their giving, their, their confessing the faith and desiring to have a word and sacrament ministry there and to constantly invite others to join us rejoicing in the voice of Jesus. So we, we've been there in Los Alamos since 2005, and I say we, that's my wife, I, I'm married, and I have uh, four children. My oldest is actually 24, and he's uh, studying at Texas A&M uh, for his uh, graduate degree. Mm. I have a daughter who's 21, who's uh, uh, studying for uh, in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico with a bachelor's degree. And uh, in Los Alamos, uh, Again, we started this, uh, the idea was to start a mission a congregation. There was no LCMS congregation in the city at that time. There used to be one back in the 60s, but it had closed since then. And so we uh, went ahead and we, we had the task of planting a mission, 2005, 2008, we became a congregation. In 2011, we built our own building and we still exist. Mm. And that's our big claim to fame is that we have weathered all, even the the COVID restrictions and all the shutdowns and the mask mandates and everything that has been going on in our space. Well, Pastor, I, I have this I had this vision as you said that it's the highest per capita of PhDs. That as as pastors that we have a degree called the Doctor of Ministry, like you had mentioned, and 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 you do call a pastor who has that pastor. A lot of times it's Reverend Doctor Brian Katchemeyer is kind of the lingo we use. But I have this great vision that you go to like a, a chamber of commerce or something, and you go into town and eat the coffee shop, and you sit down, and someone says, you know, oh, I have a doctorate in you know neuroscience or something. I have a doctorate in atomic whatever. I don't I don't know these things very well, but I have a doctorate in this. And then they say, and you, sir, like, let's just say you're, you're dressed down for the day. I said, what, what do you have a doctorate in? And you'll say, forgiveness. <laughs> that would just be great. That'd be so great. What a conversation starter. So I, I have this vision that this would be so wonderful. But anyways, <laughs> oh, and that's the truth, right? And that, that's, that's exactly right. Am I right? Well, I, I hate to shatter your vision, but there's oh. so many people with so many doctor's degrees that it's, uh, it's uh, not important to them. It's oh, gotcha. Okay, I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I just have this vision. But hold, pray that the Lord gives the opportunity. How about that? So on that note, thank you for that introduction. As we are about to dig into the scriptures, Pastor, can you begin us in prayer? Yes, let us pray. <laughs> Dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you've given us the gift of this day. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, opening our ears to hear your voice clearly, opening our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and opening our hearts so that we would believe all the promises that you give to us fulfilled in your Son, Jesus, our Savior, who is our mediator before you now. And we rejoice in the work that he continues to do by interceding for us in our lives. We ask you, O oh Lord, to bless this time together and bless us as we meditate upon your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. 
as we look at our text today, it always is in a context. There's a background. There's something that happens. And, and Nehemiah is a good book for us to always go back to the beginning because we can get mixed up in, okay, First Second Kings is what we studied prior to this. There's a story of Ezra, um, true story of Ezra that kind of gets in, in the mix in this as well. In chapter 9, there's always something that leads us up to this point. So, Pastor, what, what leads us up to this point that will help us start off on the right foot this morning? Well, I think what we want to see in the, the whole book of Ezra itself is just this continuing conversation with, uh, with the Lord. Uh, Yahweh, of course, uh, is the one who calls us out uh, of darkness. He's the one who gathers his people around his word so that he would speak. Uh, we would listen as his servants uh, with a heart uh, that uh, continues to rejoice in his voice and what he has to say to us and for us. And then we, in response, we continue this conversation in prayer, uh, where he hears our word that is rooted in the promises that he's just given to us. And then he continues to converse with us back and forth. And it's just, it's this continuous divine dialogue that's going on. And so when we look at this divine dialogue, of course, we, we come to the understanding very quickly that God alone is holy, that he is the creator, and we are part of fallen creation. And so when God assembles us and brings us into his presence, uh, we are connected with our conscience, uh, understanding this uh, uh, lack of holiness that we have in our own lives. We are unclean. We are unholy. And so we recognize our own sin, our own uh, guilt, our own iniquity, our own transgressions. But yet we are brought together in his presence so that we could uh, hear his life-giving word, that this is the kind of God that we have who is merciful, who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, so this is, this is our God, and it's this conversation that we've had ever since the beginning in the Garden of Eden uh, when Adam was given that life-giving word. And then, uh, of course, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, but he's the one who came to them to gather them uh, around his uh, speaking his promises of the seed that would crush the serpent's head. And then that continues to Abraham. And of course, it's through Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed, all because of the seed uh, from Abraham uh, would be given for the life of the world, that God, who is love, would show forth his love in this incarnational way of this, this self-giving, this sacrificial love, this unconditional love where God is the one who gives, and we are those who receive his goodness and the forgiveness of sins. So we, we track this conversation that's been going on through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then down into uh, Egypt uh, with Moses. But even that connection with uh, uh, going from the promised land with the promise of the Savior that would be born in Bethlehem and, and crucified in Jerusalem and then raised again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. In that land of promise, it's very incarnational. And so when you leave that land, that leaves your conscience kind of uh, uh, wondering and conflicted. Mm. And has God forsaken us? If he left us, you go down into Egypt, and now you're in slavery. You're enslaved to Pharaoh, but then you're brought back into the land. And so you begin to rejoice. But then, of course, uh, what happens is the, the people of God refuse to rejoice in his voice, refuse to listen and learn and to heed and to hear, and, and God vomits them out of the land. Mm. And so they end up, of course, now I'm going way into the future in, in exile. Uh, ultimately, the, the priests, uh, the, the kings, the sons of the kings, everybody, the leadership is in uh, Babylon in exile. 
and the, the, the throne of David has been overthrown and the temple has been toppled and all of this is gone. So now they're, they're at this point where they've been brought back to the land and they are once again going before the presence of God as they hear his word for the Lord is present uh, when his word is heard uh, in, with, and under that speaking of the word. He is there gathered in the midst of his people. And so they're, they're looking forward to this being brought back together to set their eyes on this promised one who would come, who would be born in Bethlehem, and who would be crucified in Jerusalem, who would be their high priest. And so that temple is always this incarnational promise of the mm-hmm. presence of God, that that's the place where we have peace, and that's the place where he wants us to gather and set our eyes on the atoning sacrifice of Christ, who is the true high priest uh, for us, the one mediator between God and man. So this is all in that kind of, this God speaks, he's life, he's holy, we're unholy, we're unclean. We have this, uh, by nature, we are enemies of God, this inclination to run away from God, to go astray, to reject his word, to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's God who is merciful, who continues to gather us around his life-giving word and to set our eyes on his son, our Savior. So this is, we're kind of in this point where we're, we're coming back into that land of promise, which has to do with the, the incarnation of Christ, the place where God promises to be present for all humanity, the place where we go and the place where we are with Christ who takes and bears our sins. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So that, that's kind of, I mean, that whole history is going to go back there. And of course, We'll look a little bit at uh, the book of Isaiah because everything's about the book of Isaiah. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're exactly right. As we talk about putting on our Christ goggles, it doesn't just happen here. It happens also in wonderful books like Isaiah. And historically, it all connects in such beautiful ways. A reminder to our listeners, too, one of the one of the times that I really um, heard Pastor Ketchelmeyer was he was on Issues Etc. weekly on Christ in the Old Testament. So I encourage people to check that out um, because it is something where he is able to connect all these things, as you've already witnessed, uh, to connect us always back to Jesus. And then it just opens up like a like a like a mighty rushing wind or something. Not even that, but you're able to see the fullness of it. Like you're on top of the mountain, you're able to see for miles and miles when you're able to see Christ in the middle of it. And there is, as it says in chapter 8, great rejoicing day by day. And that's what we have here this morning. So, Pastor, let's get into the text now that you've given us this great um, overview of what we're going to be reading. For we are in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version, beginning with the first five verses. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins in the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of Yahweh, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped Yahweh, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cry with a loud voice to the Yahweh their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless Yahweh, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. 
which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So I'm reminded when I read this that confession is good for the soul. That's the first thing I thought. How would you describe these first five verses and what's happening? Well, we want to look very closely at this understanding that Israel, the, the, the sons of Israel, B'nai Yisrael, this is uh, the people of God. It's God's people, and so God's the one who assembles them. He's the one who gathers them together. And when they're being gathered together, they're gathered together by God in his presence to hear his word of promise. And so immediately what we see, if you visualize this, is those who have been fasting and they are dressed in sackcloth. Now, those two images themselves should bring to us this going back to the garden. It is by the, the devil's temptation, uh, the Adam and Eve, to take and to eat that which was forbidden. And so that, that eating is where the, the devil had uh, deceived Eve, and uh, it's through food. It's through food. So in that fasting, this is where you, you are uh, disciplining yourself, the mortification of the flesh, that you are recognizing and realizing that man does not live by bread alone, but mm. by the Word of God. Mm. So when they're fasting bodily, it, it's to set your eyes upon the one who is the bread of life. And, and even this, this whole connection with the sackcloth, that's that clothing. So the sackcloth is this, this understanding of, of being clothed in repentance, uh, of turning away from sin and, and facing God's face. And, and, of course, in the garden, what Adam and Eve did is as soon as they sinned, they ran from God's face. You know, they heard the, the sound, it says, of God coming to them in the garden, and they were afraid. So they didn't hear a voice of God, even though it's the same Hebrew word. They heard a sound, and it, it's, it's when God goes and gathers them and then brings them that promise of the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head, that's when they can clearly hear the voice of God. But, of course, what they were dressed in is their own, uh, their own clothing that they had made with their own hands that was going to cover and hide their sin. Uh, but God, of course, uh, gets rid of this uh, idolatry. That's a, a man-made way of, of working or worshiping without God's word. And God gives them the uh, the skins, the animal skins, that's going to set their eyes upon the, the sacrificial uh, mm. lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, that we can only be covered in his righteousness. So there, there's nothing we can do to cover our unrighteousness. And so when you, you're looking at this, this whole language of fasting, and you're not eating, uh, you're in sackcloth, and, and so it's a, a clothing of repentance, of turning away from your own uh, uh, sinful desires and not gratify the, the sins of the flesh. And, and then it has that they put earth on their heads or literally ground. This is the Adamah, the ground from which Adam, Adam, came from. So when Adam is, is formed from the ground, the Adamah, you have this whole connection that when they sin, which God uh, told them that they would die, you will surely die when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so from this ground you came and back into the ground you will go. And so this putting this dirt on the head is that connection back to Adam, the old Adam, who rebelled against God, who was from the ground and goes back into the ground. And then you, you have this hope of the, the new or the, the true Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who is the true man who is going to come. And he's the one who will come out of the ground. So as Adam was formed from the ground, went back into the ground, like in the grave, would you die? Well, Jesus went into the ground, into the grave, 
And then Jesus is the one who then returns out of the ground. And so that's that bodily resurrection and the hope that we have in the ground. And that's all tied to the promised land. So when you go back to the promised land and you have a piece of that, that ground in the promised land, it's tied to the promise of the bodily resurrection. And this is why Abraham was going to uh, bury his, uh, his wife, Sarah. And the, the only piece of ground was that, that grave plot that he had, and he had to purchase it himself <laughs> so he could bury her in the hope of the participation of the resurrection of the body. So the one who would come and uh, be born in Bethlehem, he's the one who is going to take us out of the ground. So to dust we shall return, but in Christ we return once again from the ground uh, to live forever bodily. So all of this is connected to that promise of, of the Christ who would be born. And so when you have the land, when you have that ground, that ground connects you to this one who will rise out of the ground. So it's in a way similar to the way we look at a sacrament uh, in the New Testament where you have an earthly element. This is the most earthly element you can have with this earth itself, the ground. And it's tied to that participation in the hope that we have, not in this life, but in the hope in the life to come. Our hope is in Christ. So all of this is all connected and rooted in when they've been gathered by God and fasting in sackcloth and with the ground on their head, that the Israelites are going to separate themselves from the foreigners. Now, the separation from the foreigners, of course, is what you're doing is you're making this distinction. And you, you have this whole thing in the book of Nehemiah. The people of God failed to separate from worship of the world. Instead, they got caught up in all the different pagan ways of, of falsely viewing God uh, in idolatry, which, of course, is worship without God's word. I mean, there were temples all over the place. Uh, there were altars all over the place. There were all kinds of versions and visions of the deities all over the place. But the Israelites uh, kept uniting themselves to these false images and this false worship. And so here at this point, you have this direct connection that you are, you are now separating from the foreigners. Those who are back in the land, of course, you say, yeah, we worship the same God. Of course, not with the promise of the Messiah, but with our own version of how we yeah. think God is pleasing and how we can make him merciful. And the Israelites are going to separate from these man-made practices of piety. That these are, are not instituted or established by God's word, and they lack the promise of the Messiah. So they're separating uh, there from these idolatrous practices, which put them in uh, Babylon itself. And then you have this confessing their sins and their iniquities, the, the own is the, their own guilt, the own guilt. And, and when, when we talk about sins, we, we also need to understand that this is far much more than merely missing the mark. I mean, this is how typically people say, well, a sin, the word means uh, miss the mark, like when you shoot an arrow and you're kind of off target. Well, it, it's far more than just missing the mark. I mean, if sin was just missing the mark, then God would teach you how to uh, have proper aim. And you say, well, here's how you shoot a bow and arrow and you can get the target if you do it my way. Uh, but sin is far more than just missing the mark. I mean, sin is that which provokes God to wrath. Sin is what separates us from God, uh, separates us from his holiness, and separates us from his life. I mean, this is what sin does. In fact, uh, sin is not just uh, merely missing the mark. Sin is more like a, a, a laser-guided missile that now provokes God's wrath and now comes down upon us. So God's anger is now uh, upon us because of our sin. 
And so this is the whole issue with sin, but this is where we rejoice in the promise of the one who is to come who knew no sin, who was not separated from God, who was eternally uh, begotten of the Father from the beginning, that he was always face-to-face with the Father, but now he comes down for us men and for our salvation. And he's the one who knew no sin, yet he becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he's the one who then bears our sin, which, of course, takes us to Isaiah 53. But he's that lamb of God, the one who takes upon our own sin. But even that imagery, he becomes sin for us. And so that's the whole idea of the the whole sacrificial system, the substitutionary sacrifice that that animal then becomes your sin. So your sin is laid upon that animal, and that uh, laser-guided missile, now it bypasses you, and it hits that animal instead. And so that, that's the whole idea of sin. Yeah. So when you gather into God's holy presence, you're confessing that, that this is what we are by nature. We are sinful and unclean. So it's not merely just uh, missing the mark or your morals are not quite up to par, I mean, by nature, we are enemies of God. By nature, we hate God. We despise his word. Uh, uh, we don't want to have anything to do with him. We want to run, and we want to hide, and we want to make our own way to make us holy. So this is where we then confess our own uh, guilt. Uh, and that's what I would prefer in the Hebrew when we say avon, uh, instead of iniquity, guilt. Mm. Uh, it's the guilt. It's the conscience itself is connected to God, and uh, we stand condemned before God. Uh, by nature, we uh, we are sinners, and therefore we sin. It's not the other way around. It's not that because we sin, we become sinners. We we are, are sinners by birth. And, and so that, that guilt is what we know in our conscience, that when God's word rings true and he brings us before his presence, our conscience testifies that we uh, are guilty. We are, are all condemned, uh, all, all of us, none, not one has done uh, what God has demanded, uh, none of us. And by a fact uh, of being human, we can't. And so all people fall short of God's gil- uh, glory and therefore our, our guilt that we, we acknowledge before him, just like we do in the divine service. I mean, in our, our Lutheran liturgy now, when we gather in the name, we've been gathered by him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess our sins and our iniquities and our thoughts, words, and deeds that we cannot help ourselves, we cannot free ourselves from our own sinful condition. But yet we are gathered by him not to be destroyed, not to be separated from him, but instead to be gathered before him eternally with the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. I mean, this is this is the whole point of the liturgy. We believe liturgy is we gather, we confess our sin, and then we rejoice in receiving the gift of forgiveness that comes only from Jesus the only mediator that we have, the only high priest that we have before the Father. And as you look at those first five verses, you captured it beautifully. I mean, it's one of those things, you read those verses, you kind of just walk over them, but you connected it so well in the sense of that they knew they were indeed sinners. It was clinging to them. It obviously was proclaimed to them in chapter 8, with book of the law, you know, <laughs> that they, they could feel the weight of this. They're confessing their sins. But then in verse 5, which I find fascinating, they read all of this, they confess, they worship, and they stand up and they rejoice. You know, they stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. And you feel like they, they, they knew the promise. 
when they heard all of these words? In about a minute here before we take our break, Pastor, what do you think? I mean, what do you think that they heard that they're rejoicing of? It sounds to me how you're connecting it is they had to have made those connections somewhere. Yeah, uh, most assuredly. Again, in the beginning, the first time God speaks the blessing upon humanity is to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, this is to continue in life. And so that's the blessing God blessed us with. Mm. And so then we are in this conversation where he blesses us and then we bless the Lord. We, we, we speak well of his name, his name uh, that he gives to us as his people. And so whenever, as the people of God who who cling to these promises, who cling to Christ, we know that God is the one who is life, and we know that he is merciful, all for the sake of his son, not mm. because of what we have done. I mean, by no means. Uh, obviously, what we have done is separates us from God, and we cannot make God merciful by our own man-made methods, but instead, he's the one who is merciful, and we know that when we are gathered before him to hear his word, it's not so we can be scolded and then we can be uh, condemned, uh, that uh, we can hear that we are cursed. But instead, we are gathered in his presence to be assured of the forgiveness of sins, comforting that conscience that has been from, uh, terrified and accused uh, by the, the reality that uh, we are sinners by nature. As we move forward in this text, I'm going to be fascinated to hear your perspective, exactly what you said. They knew the Lord was merciful. There's a seared conscience, and, and but then they still rejoice after they hear all these words. So I want to hear more about that. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 9 with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, and we'll be right back. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. And welcome back. We are studying Nehemiah chapter 9 with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. And we've gone through the first five verses. And as we plow through these verses, there's so much law pointing us to our sin. And there's so much grace and forgiveness, as the pastor said so well, forgiveness, life, and salvation that pointed them to the Messiah to come and they rejoiced. But I want to keep moving through the text so we keep, keep going here so we actually get to the end. But verses 6 through 16. And then, Pastor, I want to hear your perspective because you make a connection of this and King Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. And so I want to get to that after I read these verses. Verse 6. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heavens of heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. 
and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard the cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire night of light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai, and they spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes by law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven, for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock at their thirst for their thirst and you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them now we're definitely going back here pastor and and you you suggest that this prayer they're praying connects us to Hezekiah king Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter uh, 37 so pastor tell us about that how these connect yeah, very good, because everything connects to the book of Isaiah, that's why. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. <laughs> but what, what happens in, in Isaiah, and I think that this is important to understand, that, of course, Hezekiah is king of Jerusalem, a son of David. We're watching for that son of David, the promised one. Now, Hezekiah, of course, restores once again the clear uh, uh, teaching, uh, the promises, all fulfilled in, in Jesus, the Messiah. His father Ahaz, of course, had led them down the way of all this idolatrous worship without God's word. And so Hezekiah is the one who has now restored everything and brought things back together. Once again, he's trying to build the pieces, and he's, he's setting his eyes upon uh, the promise of the Messiah, the son of David, the true son. But yet then they're, they're troubled. So Hezekiah is troubled in his own conscience. Uh, when you have the Rabshaka, that he comes in with the the empire of Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria comes in, and they've already destroyed the northern Israel, uh, the northern tribes. That whole uh, group is gone; they're gone, and now they're going to just devour southern Judah, because we're after the time of the split of the northern south kingdom. And so he's he's marching on the city of Jerusalem, where you have the throne of David, and you have the temple. So you have the promised uh, presence of God at the temple. You have the promise of the Messiah and the throne of David. And the Rabshakeh comes and he says, Yahweh, talk to me. And Yahweh is the one who told me that uh, I get to destroy the city. And in fact, he's troubling Hezekiah because he's trying, the Rabshakeh is trying to say, it's because you changed the worship. <laughs> that you uh, changed the worship and that's why Yahweh is mad. So, uh, of course, Hezekiah is extremely troubled by this. And so he prays. There's a prayer of Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 37, mm. where he begins this whole prayer, Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned on the cherubim, uh, the, the cherubim in the heaven. You are the one. And also the cherubim, of course, on earth, the, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, above the, the cherubim. That's where his seat is, his throne is, the mercy seat. And so you have Hezekiah at the temple praying uh, before the promised presence of God that he is the one who made the heavens and earth. So again, you start off with this understanding that all these other false images of God, all these other idols, none of them made 
uh, anything. Instead, they are made by fallen humanity. So God originally made us in his own image, and then fallen humanity makes deities in fallen, corrupted, created uh, hearts of humanity's image. And so what you have Hezekiah doing is going to the temple, the place of the promised presence, and, and talking about how God alone is the one who made the heavens and the earth, which takes us back to his blessings of life being fruitful and multiplying. And he's the one there in the, the uh, garden with Adam and Eve. And so all of this is happening. Hezekiah is, is focusing on a creation and the one who is life in a word of life in opposition to this false word that he's hearing from the, the king of Assyria. So the whole idea is the king of Assyria is saying, I got you in my hands and I'm not going to let you go and I'm going to destroy you. But what Hezekiah is doing is looking to Yahweh is the one who delivers us. He alone is holy. He's the one who is going to deliver out of the hands of our enemy. And when you talk about the hands, you talk about the, the works, the things that are done. In fact, Hezekiah is talking about these, these false gods. Uh, these false gods that are just the work of the hands of men. Uh, they're just their wood and their stone. Uh, these are the, the, the ways of worship to try to make God merciful. So Hezekiah is praying this prayer at the temple. His conscience is really conflicted because you have either the word of God, as, as we have in the written scriptures, that has been heard by the prophet Isaiah, but then you have a different word from the Rabshakeh who says this is the word uh, in the name of Yahweh. So Hezekiah is trying to discern which word is from the Lord, which one is the name of Yahweh. And then, of course, Isaiah, the prophet, will speak the word and assure him that that place, the temple, it will stand and Assyria will not overthrow the temple. So, I mean, all of that's connected with what's going on here when later on, then you had the Babylonians come in because, of course, when Hezekiah is being troubled by the Assyrians, what does he do? He says to the uh, the ambassadors of Babylon, come into my city and say, let's be friends and I'll show you where all the treasures are. I'll show you where all of our weapons of war are. And, uh, you know, nothing could go wrong then. But ultimately, uh, the people of God fall into sin and they reject the promise of the Messiah. They refuse to listen to the voice of God. And the, the temple is toppled, and they end up in, in exile into Babylon because they did not listen and learn from the Lord. And so you have this returning from exile uh, after uh, Cyrus, of course, king of Persia, allows the Jews to come back 538, and then he's even financing this building of the temple. Uh, the, the people, are, it's kind of a restart kind of going back to where they were back in the days of Hezekiah, even though the king of Assyria was coming to destroy the city, he wouldn't because God uh, remains faithful to his promises and his people. And he always promises to work together for the good. And it's kind of like a restart. So now you're working once again, back in the promised land. Once again, we're going to have the temple. God's promised uh, a place of presence, which always points to the incarnation, that that's the only place in Christ where we can find salvation. So that's this whole kind of connection where you have that same kind of language with this prayer. You know, Ezra and the Levites are praying and they're saying, you, O Yahweh, you alone, you made the heavens and the heavens, the heaven of the heavens, right? That he's the one who has made all things. In contrast, the humanity, which just makes the math. That's what we do all the time. 
In fact, the first time that uh, humanity makes something is when Adam and Eve, they make those fig leaves. So every time you hear this making, this is in the language of, of what human hands have done, and then they try to impress God with their own efforts, their own merits, their own uh, works that they think will make themselves righteous before God's sight, or make them holy, or make God merciful. This is all the works of the hands. I mean, that's what sheer idolatry is. But instead, you go back to the one who made all things with his hands, uh, Yahweh, uh, who makes all things with uh, the word and the spirit. As the word hovers over the water, and he speaks life into existence. He sends forth the sun. And so that's the prayer. It's that same kind of beginning prayer where you go back to the one who creates all things. That he's the one who made the promise in the garden when Adam and Eve were deceived, and then they separated from life uh, in their sin. But God's the one who comes and gathers them once again to set their eyes upon his son, the promised one, the, the one who is to come, the Yahweh, our salvation. As you wait through the whole book of Genesis, you have a child born. Is this the one? No. Is this the one? No. Death, 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 death. We get to the end of the book of Genesis and everybody dies. <laughs> so, yeah, Jacob dies, Joseph dies, everybody dies. And so that's not the end of the story because we're still waiting for the one who will overcome the grave. And so you go back to the promise in the garden when we made a mess of this whole creation. So that's where he starts uh, with the host of heaven, all the earth that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You, you're the one who, who keeps them alive. You're the one who preserves and sustains all of them, mm. that all creation bows down before you. And so this is, this is the creator who created everything. And all these false gods are just part of fallen creation. And that's the trick of the devil is he tries to trick us to cling to corrupted creation instead of clinging to the creator who gives us the promise of salvation. And then you immediately go from Genesis in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve about the seed who's going to crush the serpent's head, and then you get to Abraham. Because it's in Abraham of all the people of the earth that it's the seed of Abraham. It's from Abraham that this one is to come. So the promise is that the virgin shall bear, uh, conceive and bear a son, and it's going to be from Abraham. He's the one that all nations will be blessed in. And so that's why we go back to uh, Father Abraham. And, of course, in Genesis chapter 15, how does Abraham become righteous before God? Not by his works, not by his efforts, but by faith. So through faith in the promise of God, he is declared righteous. He is imputed righteous. So you have this, this teaching of justification goes all the way back to the foundation of creation, that we are not holy by our own efforts. Adam and Eve were already created holy. They were already righteous. And then you get that teaching with Abraham. It's through faith in this promise. So it's not from your own efforts that make you right in God's sight, but it's God who alone is holy and bestows his holiness upon us. And that uh, righteous one, Jesus alone is the righteous one. Jesus alone is holy. We go to that promise in Abraham of his seed. And so there's where we go. But as soon as we go back to our, our, our connection with the, the, our forefathers, in their sins, we recognize that they went astray and they were led down into slavery and captivity in Egypt. So this is kind of this whole direction you go from, from Abraham down into Egypt, and then this is where you get to uh, Moses, of course. 
And this is, I mean, this is a great, great look back because they're, 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 it's like they, okay, we know the mercies of God. They're going back and they're showing what happened. And it wasn't like, oh, just look at how faithful everybody was. I mean, look how perfect everybody was. You know, we can have this like nostalgia view of our family and everybody else. But here, I mean, he's very honest, like, this went wrong, this went wrong, it gets even worse beyond this. And he's repeating Hezekiah, kind of like, like you said, a restart, saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to pray that same prayer because the problem wasn't with God, it was with us. <laughs> and so they're confessing again, and he proclaims it so beautifully. And Pastor, I want to do this because I want to hear more of your thoughts on that, but we have to keep moving. So I want to keep reading from 16 down to 31, and I think... We could probably spend two more hours on this, but we can't. So anyways, 16 to 31, we'll keep going. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you were in the great mercies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way that did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which you should go. they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not as well. Did not swell, excuse me. And you gave the kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land and Canaanites and gave them into their head, their hand with the kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, you gave them a saviors who saved them in the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and they abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. 
for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, there's a lot in there, Pastor, and I'm going to have to give you about four minutes to to look at when they were in, they're in the Exodus and they're traveling, and what are the themes or what are your thoughts on these verses? Well, again, I mean, we, we move from Abraham in, into Moses, and so you make this clear uh, confession that Yahweh is the one who is righteous. He alone is righteous. He alone is holy. And he's the one who continues to uh, give us good gifts. He is merciful. We can't make him merciful. In fact, when you want to focus on what we have done, what we have made, we always make a mess. And so that's that confession of of our own sins, our own uh, guilt, our own transgressions, everything that we have done against what uh, he gives. So uh, we are to receive in Thanksgiving all these wonderful gifts, but instead we reject them. Uh, We we spit upon them. We despise them. uh, We turn the other way. But this is when God's own people go down to Egypt, and then they are in slavery, and they are in oppression. They are being tyrannized by uh, Pharaoh. Of course, the tyrants and tyrants is the devil, who is behind all these kingdoms that try to prevent God's kingdom from coming. That is hearing God's word of promise in the true king of kings, which is Jesus, the prince of peace. But he's the one who heard their cries, and he came down. He's the one who was there with them. He was there, the one who, who struggled uh, for them. He's the one that delivers them, and he's the one who's afflicted with them and for them. And then he's there present in, with, and under the pillar of cloud uh, uh, by night, and the pillar, uh, or the pillar of cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night. But you also see the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is always there. Uh, that the Holy Spirit comes with this word of promise with Jesus, so that our eyes would be open to see our Savior that our ears would be open to, to hear these promises and our hearts would be open to rejoice in what he has done for us, giving us all of this uh, life, salvation, and forgiveness. That he is merciful, there's nothing we can do. So it's this constant refrain that we know him as the one who is merciful. Uh, he's the one who continues to come and to seek and to save the lost. Uh, this is our Savior. So even when we talk about the language here of raising up saviors instead of raising up judges. You know, when we look at the book of Judges, that's all setting our eyes on Jesus. Mm. Uh, That he alone is the one who will save us from ourselves, from our own sin. (laughs) And when you talk the language of a deliverer or savior, this is someone else who does this for you. And so they're, they're recognizing that he has done this for them continuously and that he would continue to do this for them in their day and for posterity's sake into the future. One of the beauties of what is happening here is something that one time in my office, a, a gentleman came in and he was he had a very big, he had a passion. He was a, he was a Lutheran, a Wisconsin Center Lutheran guy. He came in and he had many physical struggles, but he had a passion of working with ex-convicts. And I remember he went, went down the list of how the Lord had blessed him and he went through all the trials he had. And I remember he ended it all with just this is great confession of, and I just can't believe that the Lord Jesus would die for someone like me. And he was, you know, it was just this beautiful reality. And I feel that with with this prayer, this um, recount counting of the deeds of the Lord, saying, look at how unfaithful our people have been. Look how unfaithful we have been, but yet the Lord is steadfast in love. And I really felt those that that feeling when I read this and when you hear it once again, that, that they knew the grace of God because he had given it to his people, and now they were confessing it very clearly in this prayer. So, Pastor, we, we have to read the rest of the verses, but I wanted to see if there's any last thoughts you have, because I think 32 is a transition. Any thoughts? 
Yeah. I mean, again, just this constant refrain in this uh, understanding that God is the one who is merciful. So you, you talk about what we've done, we've sinned, we've transgressed, mm. we have uh, not listened to you. What is What does God do? He is merciful, and he continues to come to us. That's all incarnational, that he continues to forgive us. I mean, so that's the focus on what does he do? He forgives. What do we do? We sin. <laughs> so we gather to receive the good gift of what he's done. And we're not trying to give him the, the gifts of what we've done is always tainted with sin. So if we go before God's presence and we don't say, hey, look at my hands, what I've done. Instead, uh, God graciously says, look at the hands of my son and what he's done. Uh, pierced for your transgressions and the blood is shed for you. Well, let's continue to the end and wrap things up. Verse 32 to 38. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet you have been righteous in all that have come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and have act, and, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your own, your own, your great goodness that you gave them, and the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked words. Works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes on to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document that are in names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So, Pastor, he wraps it up here in a very unique way, but we have about three minutes left here. So, somehow, try to wrap this all together as we look at these verses in the whole chapter. Yeah, so, again, you have a contrast of what God does mm. for us versus what we do. Uh, I mean, we, we think it's for his glory or whatever it may be, or we just do it for our own vainglory, whatever it may be. But the, the focus is always on, on God's actions, that you know, he's giving us these gifts. He's given us these cisterns that he's that have already been healed. We didn't even have to do it. He's given vineyards that we didn't even plant, olive orchards, fruit trees. I mean, all this he gives, that yeah. he's the one who gives it, and then we're the ones who receive this. But again, he's the one who is righteous. So you have this contrast between being righteous and acting wickedly. So typically throughout the Old Testament, the ones who are the repentant, believing sinners are the righteous. We're justified by faith. Mm. And so typically in the Old Testament, we're called the Sedekim. We're the righteous, the righteous, not by what we've done, but by faith in the Son. And on the contrast, you have the wicked, which are the Rashayim. These are the, the unrepentant, unbelieving uh, sinners. And, and so here you have this contrast where God is righteous, and we are the ones who act wickedly. So we mm. act wickedly. So we don't even come before him and say, look what we've done. Instead, we just confess what we've done. We've acted wickedly. Who you are, you are righteous. And it's because of his righteousness that is imputed, reckoned, counted, declared to be our own by faith. So we receive this gift of, of righteousness. So we don't even come before him with what we've done in any kind of righteous deed. We're in before his presence 
receiving this benefit, the gift of his righteousness that now is ours by faith. So by faith, what was his is ours. And so he takes our sin, all the wickedness, and he dies for that, and he rises again for our righteousness so that we would be justified. He stands as the high priest. So all of this is his actions, what he does for us now in time and into eternity. So if you were to have like a bumper sticker or some short statement with about a minute left here, Pastor, you're looking at chapter 9. They recount all of these things. They know the Lord's mercy. How would you summarize it? In a bumper sticker? Sure. <laughs> Maybe a big bumper sticker on the back of a car. But a maybe. Big, <laughs> <laughs> well, that the, the God is, is faithful to his promises. Mm. Uh, I mean, so that that's really, this, he's faithful to his promise. And so that's what they are. They are gathered before the presence of God, the face of God, by God, and we're being reassured of his promises, that he is the one who keeps the covenant and his steadfast love, his chesed. Uh, that, that's who he is, and that's what he does. Uh, that's a pretty long bumper sticker. I, I but, love uh, it. I love it, though. <laughs> we, but we, God is faithful to his promises. There it is. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico, giving us God's strong word from Nehemiah chapter 9. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, thank you for being our guest. Oh, it's great to be here. Saints of our Lord, what do we do? Sin. And what does God do? Forgive. What does God uh, give? He gives his gifts. And what do we do? We receive. This happens here in Nehemiah 9, and it also happens for us today, all on account of of our Lord Jesus. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.